Welcome back to part two of the podcast. I'm Jeffrey Madoff here with Dan Sullivan, and we're going to talk about anything and everything. Yeah. No, it's really fascinating because I think it's true whether you're doing a play or whether you're building a business, the kind of people that you want involved with you are people who feel like they have a stake in it. Well, not only that, they're the best in their class. You're looking yes. for, they're at the top of their talent. Yes. They're looking for each of them in their own way because they're very different in what they bring to the overall result. They're the masters of that realm. So once you give them what it looks like when it's finished, I mean, the biggest thing that I can do, I said, I'm going to tell you something I'm very excited about. It's a result. And the day we achieve it, it looks like this, it looks like this, it looks like this, it looks like this. What I'm saying is that this is true. This is the amount of money we make. There's a whole series of measurements. But nowhere in my description of the project am I telling them how somebody else is going to do it. I'm depending on them to bring their skills to it. And I said, because if someone tells you what they want done and then tells you exactly how they want it done, it's not very motivating. That's right. Not to good people. No. And there are those, by the way, that wait to be told what to do. And those, to me, are not major contributors. They're not very good. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So when we were about to go on stage for the workshop that you and Bab saw, one of the actors said to me, we're all together. And one of the actors said to me, it must be very exciting for you. You are seeing your baby come to life on stage. And I said, well, this is very exciting for me, but I don't see it that way. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, I gave that baby up for adoption to Sheldon, the director. And then you guys, through your interpretation and your talent, bring that baby to maturity and adulthood. So now I'm just a member of the audience mm. who's watching this happen. And I think that in many steps along the way where I learned, you know, a big lesson from Sheldon, the, our musical director, Shelton Becton, is so fantastic. All of them operate in the same way, mm -hmm. which is you get the people enlisted so they feel a part of it. And in fact, of course, they are. And I always wondered, why would you hire people and then not listen to them? Yeah. But I see a lot of businesses where that happens. Well, I see it in every field of human activity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, where you get the most from people is when you are with those people on the journey. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really fascinating. So you find the best people. Yeah. Just to recap here for a moment, you find the best people by getting people who are enlisting in the dream. Yeah. You're putting together the script or the hymnal or whatever you want to call it that we all sing from, but everybody can offer their own contribution to it that makes the whole thing bigger and better. It's, you know, part of the philosophy that we're selling to the customers, but it's also the philosophy. And one of the things that I think is very, very important is that the clients listen to what we say. In other words, the ideas that we present in the workshops. And they go through the thinking exercises to create their own plans. But I'll tell you, I know for a fact 
that they're watching us, that's only half their brain. And the other half of their brain is devoted to everything that he's telling us how to run our organizations. Is that how they run their organization? And there's this front stage, backstage congruency. And one of the things that I do is that everybody in our company, and we're, you know, we have 120 right now coming out of COVID. We're about 120. We were 130 when we went in. So we're fairly good. We kept a lot of strength. But everybody's got to be in the workshops. Like everybody who works for a strategic coach, the least would be once a year at least, and most of them are four times a year. They have to be in the workshops and they have to participate in the breakout groups when the clients get together. The team members have to go and be in the breakout groups. And I said, I want you to listen to how they talk about their lives. And I want you to listen to how they talk about the successes they're having. I want you to listen to the problems they're running into. Okay. And understand that our entire business is just devoted for them to have a grips on those two things. Okay. What it does, it keeps your company from becoming a bureaucracy. So my definition of a bureaucracy is where people in the backstage are completely disconnected from the front stage. Which I see in businesses all the time, by the way. Oh, yeah. There's a point of size where you have, we just happen to have this unique thing called the workshop. It allows five or six team members at a time to show up in a room where there's 40 or 50 clients. So they fit right in. But I remember at the end of the year, we have a rule that in the course of the year, you have to have attended your workshop. And we have some workshops in December where we'll have 15 staff members sitting at the back of the room. And uh, the clients will say, how can you do this? How can you have them off for an entire day? I mean, you're paying for their salaries. I said, I am. But I said, their being here means that they're staying in touch with what the value of their work is. And I said, and they're making comments all the time when we debrief. They make all sorts of comments about things they noticed and everything like that. And I said, this is not a cost. This is an investment. Oh, absolutely. That's a great way of, of looking at it. So something that also goes along with collaboration and the kind of people we're talking about, and I don't really like the word criticism. And like in theater, we call it notes. We're going to give you notes. <laughs> and that is, you know, first of all, how do you give it? How do you give notes to people without demoralizing them in the process? And how do you receive it so you don't get defensive, but can learn from the good ideas and disregard the other ones? Yeah. Well, just like with the entrepreneurs, I mean, coaching entrepreneurs isn't like teaching college students. It's not teaching. And the other thing is that you're only asking them about their experience, okay? So we don't give them any quizzes on whether they've mastered the concepts that we have. There's no quizzes or anything about, and no emphasis is put on that they have to master or memorize, you know, what it is that we're teaching them. We just want to know what did this concept do when you went back into the business? Did you try it? Okay. And what we have is a quarterly exercise with all of the entrepreneurs, but we also have the same exercise with our team. And first of all, what are the five things that really worked over the last quarter? 
And then what are the five things that didn't work? So they have to grade themselves about what didn't work, okay? And you're saying, okay, you know what worked, you know what didn't work, so next quarter, how do you profit from both what worked and what didn't work? So how do you take what worked and expand on it? How do you take what didn't work and use it as a better preparation so that it doesn't happen next time? So what I try to do is, since it's their life, their career, we kind of take the same attitude to our team members. Look, you're here for your reasons, not our reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, if you're working for us, you're not here for my reasons. You're here for your reasons. Now, are two reasons in parallel with each other? Are we actually coordinating? And I said, look, if you decide that it's better to be someplace else, hey, we're not going to trash you for that. We're not going to criticize that for you. And the other thing is you can't bargain with us, okay? You can't say, I've got a job offer. And we said, no. So you can't bargain. You can't bring an outside offer back to us. We want you to know that right now, okay? There's no bargaining. You're either here or you're there. We try to simplify right up front. If such and such a thing happens, we want you to do your best to the very last day that you're here. And we want you to do a good job of training your successor in your job. Okay. I mean, nobody gives anybody bad referrals anymore because you can get sued for it. Right. You know, but you can say, we want to notify that so and so worked here for three years. Well, that's how you get around that, you know, (laughs) if you don't say anything good about them. But it's really touchy with labor laws being what they are. So the big thing, you know, is I have a great belief that people are running their own lives, you know, and The reason why they're here is that it relates to something they're trying to achieve. We'd like them to know what that is, and we'd like to know what that is that they're trying to achieve. Our best salesperson we ever had, you know, in terms of actual sales, came in and said, just want you to know, I've got three kids now, and I I just can't work like this anymore. And she says, but I am going to go back. And she says, I'm going to become a teacher. I'm going to be going to teacher college. That's great. You know, it was all positive and everything like that. And, you know, you go on with things. So this sort of follows as I think a good, maybe final point in this realm, which is you've witnessed a lot of companies that lose people. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of a common thread or mistake Mm -hmm. that you see companies make that their people are often heading for the exits or they don't get the kind of people that they want. You know, what, from a management point of view, do you see as the mistakes and ways to correct those? Well, I think the big thing is how the entrepreneur sees himself or herself. And that is, it's very, very crucial. And you use the words manager. I'm not a manager. I'm not a manager at all. Babs is not a manager at all. And there's all sorts of tests and profiles that you can take, which kind of indicate that neither of us are managers. Both of us are leaders. My feeling is that in a really good company, you have to have both leadership and management. And what we try to do is to keep the two separate. What are the distinguishing characteristics between being a leader and being a manager? Well, I'll start with the manager first. The manager is to make sure that everything that is presently 
in play. You know, the work that has to be done, the money that has to be brought in, that's a known factor. And they're 100% responsible for bringing in what's in play. So we have sales managers, we have marketing managers, we have production managers, and they're not creating the future. They're simply maximizing the present. So managers do not create the future. Managers make sure that you maximize what you have available. The job of the leader is to create the future beyond that, the bigger future beyond that. Interesting. And so what is the mistake that you see entrepreneurs make in terms of the people that work for them that is most common? And what would you say is the remedy for that other than a personality transplant? Yeah, well, it's not being clear between the two functions. And then trying to combine the two functions where you're really good at one and not good at the other. So you might be a good manager, but you're not a leader. Okay, so things are well run. It's just that things are not getting bigger. Okay, and the other one is that you're a leader. And I think this was probably the Steve Jobs thing. He was a leader, but he wasn't a manager. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that his time away, you know, when he was actually fired. And then he went out and he was part of Pixar. He was part of Nexus. And he created a whole new operating system for an entirely new operating company. And then he comes back and his time away had been well spent. But in the meantime, he came back and he had a, they brought a great management team with him. That's when Apple went through the roof. I mean, you have to understand that except for a $150 million loan from Bill Gates, Apple would have gone out of business the year that Steve Jobs came back. They were really close to the cliff. And I think the one thing is they had great customer loyalty. First of all, they had created really good products and they had, as painful as it was, Apple customers said, you know, you can't abandon the ship because the technology is so good. So they had that going for him. But they were really close when he came back. I think they were very very close to the edge. Now they're the highest valued company in the world. Yeah, it is astounding. So to bring it back home to our umbrella topic, yeah. relationships yeah. and building solid business relationships. Can you summarize for me what you think are the key points? And that's with both clients and with the people that work with you or for you. Yeah, I think the big thing is that you have a vision beyond the present. In other words, there's something that you're going toward that just hearing about it is exciting. I mean, if you're not building something that's exciting, not only for you, but for other people, which means that it has to be exciting for the marketplace, for customers and clients, and it would be exciting to be part of an organization to do that. I think you're dead in the water if you don't have an exciting vision. Then the other thing is that you're not depending upon other people buying it for you to be sold on it. One way or another, you're going to get there. You're just giving them an opportunity to be part of it. Okay. And the other thing is that once they're hired and we work out how it works, then they're in control. So I just like another distinction I bring in that I am not in control of strategic coach from a front stage standpoint, I'm not in control. I am in charge. 
Okay, and I like to make a distinction. It's the same distinction as between leadership and management, that leaders are in charge and there's sort of an electrical. When you say charge, there's a sense of electricity. There's a sense of motion. There's a sense of of movement. That's my role. My role is to be excited about the future and to communicate that excitement, okay, and to know what belongs to the future and doesn't belong to the future, like there's standards that go along with that. That's opposed to being in control. Managers are in control, okay, and you want them to be in control. They control the mechanism that gets you there. So, you know, again, it may be an unusual discussion because I think both of us sort of operate from an entertainment model that there's a front stage and a backstage, and that the front stage impact requires on a lot of moving parts. You have the script, but the script is just the blueprint. And then what do things actually look like depends upon people who in their area are much better than you are. Which is important to surround yourself with. You got to be surrounded by people who are much better than you in everything except the thing that you do best, which is give powerful, motivating purpose. I think that's been great. That was a great sentence to end that on. I think this is a good one to, when we get the recording, to send out to your team. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think if Gord goes through this. He'll break it up into. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that we touched on a lot of interesting areas. I love some of the distinctions that you drew between being in charge and being in control. And that the leadership is about creating the future, where management is maximizing the present. You know, I think that stuff is really great, because I don't think a lot of people think that way. Yeah. Which is why you command the big bucks, Dan. Those distinctions are really good. Well, yeah, we can talk about the money aspect of it, you know, in our next thing, because, you know, money is very subjective, Next time, what I'd like to talk about is what is the proper amount of money that you should make for your entrepreneurial efforts? You know, what's the right pricing? Anyway, so I'm interested in this because I've just spent the last six days reading how the whole notion of the pricing mechanism of the marketplace developed, you know, which is, I think, the highest form of, you know, they talk about artificial intelligence. We already have the greatest source of intelligence on the planet that operates every day, and it's the pricing mechanism of the marketplace. People say, what's the pricing mechanism of the marketplace? How willing are you to pay or not pay for what you want today? Times 8 billion people. Yes, and the context in which you're viewing that. Yeah. And determining the value. Yeah, yeah. And I will tell you, the more that what you're offering includes a bigger and better future, the higher the price. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, whether that's helping you get rid of bad breath, unwanted pounds, or a new app. I mean, I think those things are yeah. eternal in terms of human nature and what they're looking for. Yeah. You're always selling an experience that's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that can, whether it's the next one or after is getting into brand and just what that is, because that's kind of the overarching story, so to speak. Yeah. We've got a really terrific brand specialist in the program now. She's from Newcastle, 
Great Britain. And she's got Fortune 500 corporations, and she has very specialized entrepreneurial. She's really wide-based in the kind of information she pulls in for what constitutes a brand. It's really great having her in the group now because she's really giving a lot of people a lot of tips about the brand. That It's really great brands. You know, I mean, you've touched on so much of it from your the class that I sat in on at the New School and also in some of our podcasts. But it's really, really that you're conjuring up a future that other people can imagine themselves in. And it's a positive, a very positive future. And it's very, very emotionally connecting for them. And I think that that's the key is the emotionally connecting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good. I will tell you, the more I keep track of the political scene, the more that I think that the impact of personality when it's seen by audiences is going to be very, very transformative. I think it's going to be a very healing play. And I think more so now than two years ago when we saw the workshops. Can you believe that that was over two years ago now? I think it was May. March. March. March, yeah. I mean, but did that go in a blink or what? Yeah, yeah. But my sense is, I think it'll be very cathartic, and I think it'll be very transformational at a much higher level than I imagined. I think I sent a follow-up note from sitting in. I said, it just seems to me that he's got a message that's very transformative right now. Well, I mean, thank you. I think it's an important message for people to hear. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's also interesting because you don't know. I mean, did I know that I would meet Lloyd Price and that that would have such an impact on my life and truly change the direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny because the other day I was being interviewed and somebody said, so when did you meet Lloyd? How old were you when you met him? I said, you know, early 60s. And they said, and so you decided to like upend what you were doing to pursue this? I said, well, you know, I'm seduced by ideas. And I thought this was really exciting. And I think that, well, is this a, a passion play or is this commercial? And I said, I don't draw the distinction. I'm passionate about the play and I think it's going to be very successful commercially. Yeah. You know, people look at things well, as binary all the time. The whole thing is that the questions say more about the interviewer than they say about you. <laughs> no, you're right. You know, you could ask a question. So how were you looking at things where you already had a full career in and now you saw the possibility of something really big. Right. That would have been a much better question. Yes. Yes. But unfortunately, you weren't the one asking it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that's how you think. Well, there are such cliches out there, you know, about, well, there's a thing that 60 years old means something. Right. Yeah. And I think that we create our own meanings for things. Oh, yeah. I remember my dad was 30 years older than I. So I vividly remember his 40th birthday. And there was a party at our house. And my dad was very athletic. So people were saying to him, Ralph, now that you're 40, are you going to stop running around on the tennis court like you're a teenager so you don't drop dead of a heart attack? Yeah. Meanwhile, what it was is that that question revealed more about them because they were all sedentary. They were all overweight. And my dad 
had such a great sense of camaraderie with his friends who we'd play with. And it was an important part. He was competitive. He was athletic. He enjoyed it. And I used to, as a kid, and I think that contributed to my ear for dialogue, mm-hmm. the way that they would jab each other in a fun way. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had someone whose behavior I witnessed who didn't hew to the notion of, well, I'm old now. I guess I should stop doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't my dad, you know, and one of the primary motivators when he got cancer and I became a self advocate was I said to him, I promise you, dad, if you listen and you do this, I'm going to get you back on the tennis court. I'm not going to say that you will be where you were, but I'll get you back on the tennis court. And the doctor had given him three or four months and about eight months later, he was back on the tennis court. Mm -hmm. And he lived almost three years and was able to be here and hold my kids when they were born. Me and my mom were at the hospital. You know, and so many people, I think it threatens their own sedentary self, both mentally sedentary and physically sedentary. Well, I think at a certain point, people go static. You use the word, they kind of freeze. But they're buying into outside models. It's really interesting that you mentioned the age 40, because I think that till 30, if somebody's really great in their teens and 20s, you never know if that means they're going to be great later on. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that they may have had just unusual support. They may have had unusual education. People make a big deal about them, you know, when you're, oh, boy, if you're this way in your 20s, boy, you're really. And my sense is that there's kind of like, you know, in marathon running, they have a thing called the wall. It's 26 miles and it happens about the 18 mile. And it's when your system switches over from getting enough oxygen through your breathing and starts pulling the oxygen out of your muscles. And it's lactic acid. Lactic acid is released. There's energy in your muscles, but it's really painful. It's really painful. And that's when you really start hurting. But the hurting is that it's acid is being released into your system from your muscles. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that when people hit about 30, they hit a similar type of wall. And that is that people say, okay, We've gotten you off to a good start now. Now you're on your own. And I think between 30 and 40, and you'll think back to what the decade was between 30 and 40 and what was happening. Worst decade of my life. Okay. And my sense is that, yeah, you're a star, but you're a star in a generation. And the only question is, by the time you're 40, are you just going to be a representative of that generation like everybody else? Are you actually going to be something special? So I always take special after 40 more seriously than special before 30. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and by the way, I think that's one of the huge things that pursuits that depend on youth, like athletics, why so many people's lives crash in spite of making fantastic amounts of money. Oh, yeah. Because they aren't competitive in that world anymore but they aren't equipped to do anything else. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because when I met LeBron, his mentor was Warren Buffett. And he did not want to make the mistakes he saw so many professional basketball players making that 
they're making 25 million a year. And by the time they're 36 and their career is over, they got nothing left. Yeah. One of our coaches was the financial advisor for the National Football League Players Association. So this is the Association of the Players. And they're the ones who push for pensions, you know, that they get pensions and everything like that. So it was from 1970 to 1995, so a 25-year period, the average retired NFL player declared bankruptcy 18 months after his final game. Mm. Of course, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s, a lot of these guys had to have jobs in the offseason. Yeah. You know, because yeah. they were, I remember I was reading like, you know, YA Tittle is making 37000 a year. And now, of course, when you see what they make, it's a whole different world. Yeah. One of my clients for about three years was a guy named Jimmy Sexton. And Jimmy Sexton is considered probably in the top five of football agents in the United States. He's so smart. He doesn't represent players anymore. He represents coaches. <laughs> like the football coaches are the highest paid government employees in the United States. Top coach, you know, like Ohio State, Alabama. Just with straight salary, they make about $8 million, and then they've got all sorts of residual deals. But a coach's career is a lot longer than a player's career. But when he was in the coach program, he was representing NBA players. And he had just inherited a player, Hall of Famer. You know, he'll be in the Hall of Fame as soon as the time after his retirement. It's five years after retirement. But he was Hall of Fame. Came right out of high school in Chicago, played at 18, made the All-Star game when he was 18, made the All-Star game every year during his career. And so he took him over at about the five-year mark of the guy's career. And the reason why is he, he had to fire his previous agent. So he took it over. And the first thing he does is kind of does an inventory of what the guy's finances are before he even accepts him. And then... His number one rule is that he controls the paycheck as the agent. He controls the paycheck. The athlete's basically given an allowance for the rest of his career. Hmm. He says, you don't have to accept it, but if you accept it, I control the finances. I got a complete team. We invest. And we say no to everybody who wants you to do something. So this player was really interesting. He said, you know, you looked at his lifestyle. He might have had the lifestyle of a top manager in a company in Minneapolis. And he said, you know, he looked like somebody who maybe made three or $400,000 a year, his home, you know, his lifestyle and everything like that. But he had 42 car laces. <laughs> and these were all his buddies from the hood right. and every relative, they all had car laces. So he said, I had to wean. And he said, you can't imagine how savage this gets. I appreciate the athletes that you see the position they're caught in when they get successful like that because they don't have really any education. Yeah, I mean, even if they got a four-year degree from a college, they didn't go to college to get an education. That's right, yeah. Okay, and most of them never wore regular clothes until they got their first professional paycheck. They wore sweatsuits. Mm -hmm. They wore sneakers and sweatsuits. They never had regular clothes. 
they're living at a level that is utterly foreign to where they came from, but they're not part of the world of the people who pay them. Right. Right. They're disconnected. They're, they're completely disconnected. And they're only one injury from the end of their career. Right. Yeah, it's interesting in watching the Olympics when they'll be talking about some of these sprinters or gymnasts for that matter, but some of these people that they've been out for the past year and a half because of injuries. Well, you know, when you're on that elite level, injury rate's pretty high because you're pushing your body way beyond anything reasonable. Yeah. It's fascinating, but you're right. Just how to manage your money. I'll, I'll stop recording now. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com. Music